0: Uh, If you would, please keep your Bibles open there to Genesis chapter 22. Maybe you've heard that story before. Um, We are in, obviously, the series is called The Story of God. We've been doing this the last few weeks. And surprise, one of the the questions that we've received most is, is what does all of that stand for on the stage? And it's not like all the staff is like, we got some extra time, we're going to make a Minecraft representation of the story of scripture. I, that's what it look, I'm not a Minecraft person. I've just seen it a little bit. This looks like Minecraft Bible right here. But um, we, we really want to point out some of the different main stories that we see in scripture. And uh, there are there are a lot of different stories and sometimes we have this understanding of they just happened at different moments and different times and this happened and that happened and it's just sort of frozen in a moment, and then we get further down the line, and then God just sort of made sense of it all. And that's really not what we're trying to accomplish. We're really trying to show that this is one story from beginning to end, all leading toward Jesus. And we're going to see that today in the story of Abraham and Isaac, and then specifically what the sacrificial ram has to do with it. Now, um, Usually at this time of the year, we're about three, four, five weeks into the school year depending on when you started, and it's typically around this time that the first round of tests begin uh, to to be given to you. And so as that time of the year is close and near, I figured that I would go through and familiarize yourselves with some of these different kind of tests that you might be experiencing in the next few weeks. The first one is a pop quiz. I had a teacher come up to me after first service, and they had a student that said, hey, could you tell me when we're going to have the pop quiz, okay? Just a little hint that they don't tell you. That's why it's called a Pop quiz, okay? Typically just not a real hard one, just trying to make sure that you're coming to class. You have multiple choice test. This next one, I would argue, is not a test, okay? You have the online, open book, no time limit, okay? That tests if you can access information, but it's not like a real legitimate test, okay? Then you have the final exam, which as the, the name of it, just it's obvious, it's the last test, right? And you always love finding that out in a course. This is just the last test. It doesn't cover everything. And then there is the real and true final exam that you might be familiar with. Do you know all of the material from beginning to end, the beginning of the semester to the end of the semester? And I shared with you a few months ago as I was teaching, uh, I was not really big on reading growing up. Okay, and so I can remember going to my first class called Church History. Sounds mind-bending, I know. It was actually pretty awesome. But a lot of material in this class, okay? It took fall semester and spring semester. We had to read this whole entire book. Literally about a 1,000 years of history, we were responsible for knowing for the final exam. And I can remember as Christmas was coming near, we're getting prepared for finals, And we start to get a little bit nervous because he didn't give us, he was known for being a very, very difficult professor, didn't give us a lot of information on what was going to be on the test. And then it was like people started asking, hey, what's going to be on the test? Is there going to be a study guide? Is there some sort of outline? And I will never forget our professor's response. It was always like, well, just know the material. Know the material? What material? It's 1,000 years of material. That's a lot of material that I'm supposed to be responsible for. And the answer every time was, well, just know the material. That's a a real, true final exam. That's the kind of exam that really shows, are you in this? Have you been with us from the beginning? Are you committed to this? Are you just trying to memorize a few different facts so that you can get your grades and your parents are going to be happy for you? Uh, There's a man by the name of Tony Evans, a great preacher in Dallas, Texas. He calls this section of scripture that we're going to be looking at today, Genesis chapter 22, Abraham's final exam. The test, the test of all tests. And in this, God asks Abraham these questions. Abraham, do you know me? Abraham, are you listening to? Abraham, are you really in it? It's this kind of test that, that really shows the level of his commitment. Shows the levels. Come in. Now, if you know anything about the history and the story going back into Abraham's life, those are very relevant questions because he did not have exactly a great track record of faithfulness. You see, God calling him literally out of a life that would be characterized mostly as just a a non-worship of the God of the Bible, And God tells Abraham, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make a name for you. A great nation is going to come through you. I'm going to give you a land. And that, in fact, is going to be God's doing. Yet, despite the promise, a lot of gaps existed in Abraham's faith. Whether it was the strange scenario of him trying to make his wife, his sister, out of fear for the Egyptians or bringing in the maidservant to have the child that was promised to his wife, Abraham was missing something whenever it came to having a real, true, active, vibrant faith and a faithfulness to the God that called him. If you want to get any details on how all of that worked out for Abraham, just go back a little bit earlier, go back to chapter 12 and read through chapter 21, and you can fill yourself in. But when we get to chapter 22, we begin to see a different man emerge, a man that is willing to worship God even when there is nothing in it for him other than God himself. And that's exactly what brings us to Genesis chapter 22 this morning. And the way that I would like to really deal with this, first of all, is by looking at a question. Uh, People would say that it might be a little bit of a difficulty within the Bible, at least when we take a look at it from more of a surface level. And then after that, I would like to look at two different truths that we begin to see about the faithfulness of God as he tells not just a bunch of disjointed story, but one story leading to Jesus, and then what all of that means for us. So what is it, first of all, that's the difficulty here? If we go back and we look at some of the different highlights in the stories, if you look at Genesis chapter 22, starting off there, in verse two, God says, "Take your son, your only son, the son that you love." This is interesting. It's the first time in the Bible that that word "love" is mentioned. And it's not typically the context in which we see love used, like in our culture today. Typically, love is about self, love is about self-actualization, love is about self-preservation. Yet here we see in this context, love is used in the the context of sacrifice. It's the very same word that's used in the Gospels when God the Father looks down on His Son, and He says, this is the Son of God. Whom I love and whom I am well pleased. Already, right here, from the beginning, it's looking forward to the cross. And God gives him the command: This is the son that you love, take him to the region of Mount Moriah, and then he says, Sacrifice him there, is it on this mountain as a burnt offering on the mountain that I would show you. And so Abraham, he he takes the wood for This burnt offering, he places it on his son, Isaac. And then Isaac asks him that haunting question. Here's the fire. Here's the wood. Father, where is, where's the offering? Where's the lamb? Who is it? What is it going to be? And Abraham's response is very simple. He just says, well, God will provide. God's going to provide the lamb for the sacrifice, And some people understand that in in a couple different ways. Some understand it to be more of a, like a, a wise father. God will provide it, my son. And then some think that it's more direct. Like God is going to provide it. And it's you. You are my son. You are the sacrifice. And we skip down just a little bit further in verse 10. It says, he reached out his hand and he took the knife slay his son so what's the difficulty here well, obviously, we have a loving and a faithful God desiring to bless Abraham, commanding him at the very same time to sacrifice his son. A God who would later say in the giving of the law to Moses, do not murder. How do we make sense of that? Now, it, the text like this throughout Scripture, it really raises questions among people, especially those that are skeptical of Scripture and God's authority. Uh, Sam Harris is a, a noted atheist, and this is his comment. It's pretty interesting, a comment that he makes, speaking of Abraham here in Genesis chapter 22. This is what he says. Abraham's murdering knife was already in his hand when an angel dramatically intervened with the news of a last-minute change of plan. God was only joking, after all, tempting Abraham and testing his faith. This disgraceful story is an example simultaneously of bullying and child abuse. That's an interesting perspective. That's an extreme example. You might think, well, look, I'm a person of faith. I believe in the stories of the Scripture. I believe that it's true. I believe in the authority of the Bible, which we do. But then when we begin to just dig a little bit, get under the surface, and just have a little bit more of a, like attitude, like, whew, I'm just glad that the angel came, right? It does cause questions. I don't know if you're like, if you're like me. Like, could there have been A different test? He gotta have done something differently here. One less extreme. One less, like potentially at least, like violent. If if God, if he was the one that is going to bless Abraham anyway, and this is the way that it's going to go, why did he need him make the sacrifice in the very first place? I'm not sure where you might exist on that. That continuum of doubt that might exist. On one hand, you might be like, that's, that's like an unreasonable command of God to do that. That seems very, very absurd. Or maybe at least you might have your doubts. We'll call them sanctified doubts or our questions. In the very least, when we read texts like Genesis 22, we have to take a deep breath. So what is it? What really is going on here? How can we help understand this? How can we explain this? Now, the culture that we have to understand that Abraham is coming from, this is a place that really has no framework for God at all. There's no law that's been given to them. And God has called him to leave that land and then go to a new and different land, which in some ways wasn't a lot different than the land where he came from. This was going to be the land of the Canaanites, And these people were a pretty wicked and depraved group of people. And while practices like this, child sacrifice, seem very, very extreme in our time because they are very extreme. In this culture, for a number of different reasons, this this group of people, the Canaanites, they practice things like this, like child sacrifice to worship their gods, And this was not unfamiliar to Abraham at all. He would have been familiar with this. It's recorded in Scripture. It's even seen outside the Bible, this horrible practice. And as God now calls Abraham to lead a group of people to go into this land, to be a very, very distinct group of people that are called by God, God forbids this by giving very strict laws, strict laws prohibiting that they would do this. Deuteronomy 13, verse 31, this is what God commands as, as law. He says, you must not worship the Lord your God in their way, speaking of the Canaanites. Because in their worshiping of their gods, they do all kinds of detestable things that the Lord hates. They even burn their sons and daughters in the fire as sacrifices to their gods. Yet here in Genesis chapter 22, God commands Abraham, go and do what? Sacrifice your son." I mean, you see the difficulty there how do we approach this first of all i think we have to take a step back and just take kind of a wide angle view and understand what is going on here so this is god a good god just a few chapters earlier in chapter chapter 18 verse 25 that it says this about our good god will not the judge of the earth do right this is who god is he's good and just and and right and abraham is specifically called by this good God to lead God's people to be a blessing to the nations. That's the big understanding. Then we zoom in just a little bit further, here in chapter 22. And it really, as you read through the chapter, it seems to be very, very clear that God never intended that that command ever be followed through. We see it in what happens The angel stops this, don't lay a hand on the boy, it says clearly in verse 12. And Abraham obviously understood this and had much the same view. He tells the servants that he and his son are going to worship and then they're going to come back and that God himself would provide the sacrificial lamb. That was the understanding we see in verse 8. That's the larger picture of what's going on here. But at the very same time, I'm not trying to soften this. I'm not trying to somehow get God off the hook here because the fact still remains. Here's the truth. God, as all-powerful God, is the one who gives life and takes away life. He has the right and the authority to do whatever as he sees fit whenever in his time. You realize he has your life you realize he has my life you realize that he has our next breath god because he's god can take that in an instant and before we just we, we shake our fist at him god how could you ever do that seems so barbaric God, how could you ever command something like that to happen between Abraham and Isaac? Like, let's take a minute, step back a little bit, and just thank God that he has that kind of authority. And that is actually good news. A kind of authority that, by the way, he had his son crucified to demonstrate his justice, that sin would not go unpunished, and at the very same time to demonstrate his love for us And because we are in Christ, if we're in Christ, think about the benefits that we have because of that, because God has that rightful authority. So that's the difficulty. Let's take just a few minutes and look at the two different truths that we see about who God is and his faithfulness as he tells one story from beginning to end and how that leads to Jesus and what that means for us. Okay, so truth one is this. So God is faithful to test our faith, which is connected to our actions and our works. And we see it in Abraham's story here in chapter 22. It begins just with his availability. God calls out to Abraham, and he responds actually three different times, God himself and then God through the angel. Abraham responds three different times. Here I am. I'm available. But it's more than just availability we see. It turns into concrete action. We see these vivid details throughout the story. You just need to read it. He loads the donkey, he cuts the wood. He announces to the servants, My son, Isaac, and I, we will go to worship, but we will return. He loads the wood on his son, he takes the fire. I still don't know how he took the fire. No Bible translation this week, like, cleared that up for me. Maybe you can figure that out this week. But it says that he took the fire with him, and he took the knife, and he builds the altar, and then he begins to pull out the knife. And we see Abraham, at least at this point now, the actions begin to line up with said faith. God, like, what was it that, that changed him? What was it that God did in Abraham? What changed him from, I know that you're gonna build me into a great nation, but we have sort of a different plan and we're gonna bring the maidservant in and she's gonna be the one that's gonna have the child. Lord, we know that it seems like you're slow to act here and we're going to help you out. What was it that actually changed in him? I don't know uh, how much Netflix that you watch, but I watched a series just in this last week pretty interesting series called The Mind Explained. And in The Mind Explained, there's a man that they tell a story. His name is Henry Malazy, and he's from Connecticut. And in 1953, to treat his epilepsy, doctors removed parts of his brain. And this obviously affected a multitude of different areas in his, in, in his life, uh, his long-term memory, his short-term memory. And they continually, as they told the story, it was like he just lived in the moment. Couldn't imagine the past or the future. And then doctors doing studies on him would ask him just questions. What did you do yesterday? I can't remember. What did you do this morning? I don't know. What are you going to do tomorrow? And typically he learned just to give more just generic responses because he did not know. Typically he would say, I'll do whatever is beneficial. When they talked about him and his life, they just had this conclusion and they used this phrase to describe him. He lived in the permanent present. That was him. Because he had no ability to make new memories, mainly because he couldn't remember the past. And because he couldn't remember the past, there was no context for the future, only the the present. And for Abraham, though, I, I think it was the faithfulness of God. We read in Scripture and we see this. It was the faithfulness of God in the past which clearly enabled him to envision the faithfulness of God going into the future, therefore, once for all, lining up his belief in who God was with the actions in his life. We see this in text and scripture, Hebrews chapter 11, verses 11 and 12. The writer of Hebrews looks back on Abram's life and his wife, Sarai, and it says this about their story. And by faith, even Sarah, who was past childbearing age, was enabled to bear children because she considered him faithful, meaning God, him faithful, who made that promise. And so from this one man, and he as good as dead, came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the sand on the seashore. And it wasn't just Abraham and Sarah. Writer of Hebrews talks about Abraham and Isaac in Genesis 22 and what we're looking at today. This is what it says. By faith, Abraham When God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. This next part is so important to get and understand. He who had embraced the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son. Even though God had said it was through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned, Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead. So God had promised to Abraham, I'm going to raise you up, I'm going to make you a people, you're going to get this land and because God is faithful and because God cannot lie, even if my son dies, I believe that he can be raised from the dead. Literally, he did that with Abram and Sarai in a womb that could not produce. God brought life. And Abraham reasons, if he did it then, then he can do it again. Again. He could do it in the now. And it's not just Hebrews. James tries to show this relationship between faith and works and what all this looks like as we live faithful lives to God and what it looks like to trust a faithful God. And he brings up the story of Abraham as the example. James chapter two, verses 21 and 22. It'll be on the screen. It says, "'Was not our father Abraham "'considered righteous for what he did "'when he offered his son Isaac on the altar?' You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. Now, as we read that, at least on the outset, we're thinking, okay, what's James saying here? Is he saying that Abraham somehow was saved by works? Are you saying, Drew, that we're saved by what we do? No, no, we're saved by grace through faith, Ephesians 2, 8, 9. And then also, verse 10 comes along, in the right order. Not only are we saved by grace through faith, we are saved by grace through faith. It says in verse 10, for good works. And Paul comes along again in Romans chapter four and describes Abraham. He says, Abraham, he believed. Literally, that was an action word. It's faith he trusted. And it was that faith and that trust that made him righteous. Literally, God is the one that did all the work. He is the one that made the promise. But we can't overlook the fact that Abraham, he did respond. Like what Martin Luther says about this. Obviously, one that did believe in grace by faith, being saved by grace through faith alone. This is what he says. He says, while we're saved by by faith alone, the faith that saves us is never alone. Faith that saves us is never alone. In Genesis 22, the great testing is that will Abraham act on his faith even when there's nothing in it for him? And whether it's in Genesis 22 or us, God does seem to test us and to test us in our obedience to him. God does make us ask, answer that question like, do we want God in all that he is or do we just want the benefits of what he might provide for us? Oftentimes we, we look at texts like this in, in Genesis 22 and we think Abraham is willing to sacrifice his son. Wow, are you willing to do the same thing? Would you give up your house? Would you give up your car? Would you give up your child, Right? And that's really not the point. For for Abraham, everything that he had, all the hope, all the expectations, the land, the people, the flourishing, everything that he would receive was bound up in Isaac. And the loss of the son would have meant the loss of all of that. So I think the relevant question that we might need to write down and the question that we need to answer is this. Are you willing to demonstrate obedience to God when there's nothing in it for you other than God himself? Are we willing to do that? It seems like the test is always of obedience. And it's not God in heaven, how can I test them today? I'm going to see if they're faithful, if they're not going to be faithful. These tests are for our good. And as we see God's faithfulness in the test many times, because God does see further down into the future, further than us. God, God uses these things to prepare us for the future. Uh, Charles Spurgeon, this is what he says. Thinking about this, as a God that sees not, not only the now, but into the future, this is what he says. The Lord knows how to educate you to such a point that you can endure in years to come what you could not endure today. Just as today, he may make you stand firm under a burden that 10 years ago would have crushed you into dust. God sees further down the line than we see. So many times we experience the test. God, why the test? Why the test? Why the test? We see the now. And God sees further. And many times as God does this for our good, the result of this is a greater trust and faith in who God is. And that's the result we see in Abraham's life. You look at verse twelve there in chapter twenty-two. This is what God says. Now I know that you fear God. Because you've not withheld from me your son, your only son. Now we ask the question now, how is it that God did he know this? Did he not know this? And we, we hear things like this, and it makes us make statements like, If God knows what's going to happen, why is it that I have to pray about it? We've said that before. If God knew that he was going to bless Abraham, why is it that he put him through this this great test? Why did he put him through this? Great questions. And an answer, at least in part, is that God does enjoy and find joy in seeing his children obey him. To give him the honor and the respect to honor him. Even in the test. And there is something new that we discover, though about Abraham's obedience and the significance of his commitment. It says that God knows him. That's a, it's an interesting word. It's the same very word that was used in Genesis chapter three as Jim talked about last week. Adam and Eve sin, they're naked, there is shame. And then it says because they, they knew one another. It's, a, it's an intimate word. And oftentimes the result of tests with God it's intimacy. It's an intimacy with God. It's a depth in our relationship with God that did not exist before. And there's a joy and a glorification that God receives when he sees his children obey him, even in the test. That's truth number one. Truth number two is this. God is faithful for what he began in Abraham and Isaac. He brings to fulfillment ultimately in the cross of Jesus Christ. This is what God does. He is faithful to his plan over time. Now, how is that supposed to happen? How did all of that work? Well, it did take place through a long divine plan where God used human beings, not only Abraham and Isaac, the sacrifice of this ram. A long, a long time, years, where God gives the law Where God shows like the things that God's people, they need to do, things that they need to, to do to stay in right relationship with him. We have years that go by and years that go by and faithfulness and unfaithfulness of God's people. A long time. Lots of years go by. Even times of punishment and destruction where God's people are carried away. And then after that, a long time of silence. And then the Messiah comes into the world. That crown, King David, leading to a king that would be a Messiah, that would bring people not so much out of like an authoritarian government, but would really deal with their sin in a way that had never been dealt with ever before. Day after day, year after year, God continuing to work his plan. Until we end up here at the cross. We started here, Abraham, Isaac, and the sacrificial ram. And we end up at the cross. And then we begin to look back. It's like, oh, wow, I saw it. I don't know if, if Drew Moss planned on the illustration of him going to the Sixth Sense movie would just make its way into like every sermon after that, but it It has up to this point, and I don't know if he really planned on doing this or not, but whenever you start mentioning movies like that, it is outside the spoiler alert window, but you start putting yourself in in time, right? Like, that's, that's a lot of years ago, and Drew sort of planted himself in those years, and so if we do the math, we know he is getting older. We know that this is Drew, and they're looking good. There are little cracks developing in there. I don't know. But he told the story of what it was like. And I remember like, kind of like, oh, wow. I remember going to that movie for the first time. Drew was probably about 15. His parents were taking him to the movies in their minivan. He's listening to his MXPX CDs and his headphones. And it's just a great night, whatever. And I was in a completely different plane. It was awesome. I was 24, newly married. And we were having date night like every night because we had no children. going on date night and driving our newly purchased 1997 Ford Escort sport model by the way, five speed, not an automatic, right? That's who we were, probably went to dinner at TGI Fridays, went to the movies, and we went to go see that. And I can never never forget being in that movie and coming to that point like, wow, I didn't, he was dead the whole time. And then you begin to put it together, all of the pieces leading to that moment. And we see it, all the illusions. We see it clearly in Genesis 22, One unified story leading to Jesus. And on the surface level, you have this comparison of Isaac. It seems pretty easy to see this. We have one that's acting as a sacrifice, a father sacrificing his son. And it's like God the Father sacrificing his son on the cross for the sins of the world. Like Isaac being led to the slaughter and he didn't say anything, so Jesus did the same thing. And just like Isaac carried the wood to the altar... Christ carries the cross on which he died. Isaac submits to the Father's will. Jesus does the same. And we see that, but that's really not the right comparison. (laughs) Mainly because Isaac never died. The illusion that we need to be paying attention to is that ram right over there. The one that was the substitute Genesis 22, look at verse 13. It says, Abraham looked up and there in a thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and he took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. And if this does not look forward to Jesus and what Jesus would one day do, I don't know what does. That he was the one that acted as the substitute, the sacrifice on our behalf. John 1.29 says it clearly. The lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. The one that says in 1 Peter 1.19, the one that we were purchased, that who redeemed us with the precious blood of Christ. A lamb without blemish or defect. A one that the writer of Hebrews continually lifts up over and over and over again as the newer, the greater the better, the perfect sacrifice. Many times in Hebrews we see this. Hebrews 9.14, how much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we could serve the living God. Hebrews 9.26, he has appeared once for all at the culmination of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. And he did it through the cross with joy. Hebrews 12.2, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And in so doing, he became the source of eternal salvation for all of those who know and obey him. That's the importance of the sacrifice. Sacrifice. That's why it's so important that whenever we read the stories of Scripture, we don't just see these as independent events that randomly happened and God just kind of made sense of it. It's one story leading to Jesus. And we thank God for that. I want you to bow your heads. We're gonna pray, and then we will take the Lord's Supper together. God, we thank you so much for the perfect sacrifice that you made. Through your son, Jesus. So many times before when I've read your word, I I read difficult stories like Genesis 22 and ask a lot of different questions on how you could ever allow something like that. And I view that in such a a short-sighted way. For you were doing something at that moment that many of us have not seen. But God, I thank you that you worked your plan through time to bring your son Jesus into this world to become the perfect sacrifice and therefore become the source of eternal salvation for those that know you. God, we thank you for that sacrifice. In your name, amen. Let's take the bread together. Let's take the cup.